And we're going verse by verse through this book and should be finished in six months from now. <laughs> Jesus has been baptized. That's what we saw last week. The Holy Spirit came upon him and God declared that Jesus was his beloved son. And those two themes, the Holy Spirit and Jesus being the son of God, carry over into this next event which is the temptation of Jesus. And in chapter 4 and verse 1, you see it says Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the first part. And then in, uh, in the verse, middle verse 3, this devil said that uh, he was the Son of God. So that's the second part, the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. Now, Jesus being the Son of God is also connected with 338, where Adam himself was called the Son of God. And just as Adam, a unique son of God, uh, was tempted by Satan and fell and threw the entire human race into turmoil, so Jesus faces Satan as the second Adam, defeats Satan, and is the beginning of a new humanity and a new creation. So he is going to recapture or restore that which Adam had lost. God created Adam and told him to have dominion over the world. He made Adam the ruler, the king of the world. But Adam began to listen to a second voice. Satan's. Jesus hears Satan's voice as the second Adam, but he doesn't obey that voice. He stays true to God. And Satan is defeated. And therefore Jesus begins this restoration process very important that you understand that. So let's look at the circumstances surrounding Jesus' temptation, okay? The context of these events. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. This means after this occurred, after his baptism, immediately after his baptism. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he goes from a place of... of being wet to a place that's very dry, a wet place to a dry place, from being baptized out to a, a desolate area where, where there is no water whatsoever. Look at verse 2. And being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now this statement, being tempted, is, serves as a purpose statement. It's tell us, telling us why Jesus went into the wilderness. He went there to be tempted. But it uses a participle, an I-N-G word, uh, which means that he's continually tempted. How long is he tempted? What does it say there? For 40 days. We only hear of the last three temptations, which occur after the 40 days. We're going to look at that in depth. But he was being tempted the whole 40 days. We just don't know how. We're not told that. Just like you're tempted every day of your life. He doesn't tempt you at the end of the month. <laughs> you're tempted every day. And that's what we have right here. Now, very interestingly, he's tempted by Satan, it says, or by the devil in verse 2. But he's led, in verse 1, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, showing us that the Holy Spirit is in charge. So the devil is subservient to the Holy Spirit and is being used by God to tempt Jesus. 
Just as God used Satan to tempt Job. Satan didn't tempt Job on his own. He couldn't tempt Job until God gave him permission to tempt Job. Amen. <clears throat> and so God is going to use Satan as an instrument to test Jesus in the wilderness. And it's a real test. Satan is going to tempt Jesus and try to get him to fall. But from God's perspective, God is testing Jesus to show that he's the genuine, real McCoy, and he won't fall. Amen. Just like uh, the Ford Motor Company takes its cars out to the Mojave Desert. And the driver, like Satan, does everything that he can to get that car to fall apart under stress. But Ford has sent that car into the desert to prove that it will pass the test. And God is using Satan to tempt Jesus, and Satan's trying to get Jesus to fall and fail, but God is using the temptation to show that Jesus indeed will pass the test, and he won't fail, and he won't fall. Now notice, the temptation is 40 days, but we're going to be given the last three temptations. 40, by the way, is an Old Testament number that always deals with testing. And I don't have to go into that. We can turn back there and show you... Exodus 34 and different places, how it's a place of temptation. But let's look at the temptations themselves. At the end of verse 2 it says, And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, those 40 days had ended, he was hungry. And here we have the temptation, number one. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone, probably pointing down to a flat stone, to become bread. Now the word if there should be translated since. Since you're the son of God, tell the bread to turn into stone. Now, here we have Satan speaking in verse 3. We don't know whether Jesus heard him with his physical ears and whether he saw him with his physical eyes. Or whether this is a voice, that he hears this voice in his head. In other words, it's a vision. We're just not sure how this temptation is taking place because it doesn't tell us how it takes place. It just says Satan spoke. So we don't know whether he appeared or whether he was invisible. How does Satan tempt you? Does he show up? Knock on your door with horns and a pitchfork? You see him? You don't have to have that. He doesn't have to tempt you that way. So... We're going to see that a lot of these temptations uh, were probably vision-based. And we'll see, we have some evidence for that, and I will show you that. Now, the temptation is very straightforward. He challenges Jesus to use his status. Since you're the Son of God, because you're the Son of God, based on the fact that you, like Adam, are a unique Son of God, satisfy your own hunger. You're hungry. You've been out here for 40 days. Change the stones into bread. Now, that's a pretty good temptation. It's one that we've all experienced. There's no need for you to, to lack. There's no need for you to want. There's no need for you to go hungry. Just satisfy your urge. You have a right to do that, don't you? You have a right to have what you want. Don't you make a living? Don't you? You're an American. You have certain rights. 
privileges. You're not like people in another country. You have a right to live a certain way and have a certain car and do a certain thing and eat certain food and wear certain clothes. I mean, that's your right. Life, liberty, and the what? The pursuit of happiness. That can even be a temptation for us, believe it or not. Now, so Satan, in this sense, Jesus is very hungry and he's, he's tempting him at the point of his weakness. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with eating. We all have to eat. So it's not like the temptation is something evil. He asking to do something bad. There's nothing inherently wrong with evil or inherently evil with eating. We all eat. Even before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve had, had to eat. Right? Eating wasn't sin. When does eating become sin? Yeah, when you eat what God told you not to. Now, see, Adam and Eve could have eaten anything they wanted, but there was one tree. And uh, God said, now that one you can't eat. So what does Satan do? He brings that one from that one tree. He says, go on and eat. Eat what God has told you not to eat. In this case, the Holy Spirit has led Jesus out into the wilderness for a purpose, and he, he's fasting, and God doesn't want him to eat at this point. And Satan uses his natural appetite, something that's good. Food, that's good. Appetite, that's natural. And he uses some, a natural appetite and food which is good and tries to get him to eat when God doesn't want him to eat. And satisfy his own needs. Okay? So that's what we have. So, you have a right to this. Do it. Now we look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered, answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. See, the key is not food, is it? The issue isn't food. The issue is obeying God's word. Okay. By the way, notice he says, man shall not live by bread alone. This is a quote, by the way, from Deuteronomy. We don't have to go back to all, all, all those passages. But notice he's going to face this temptation as a man, not as God. He's facing it as a man. And he said, eating's not the important thing for a person's <coughs> life. The real important thing is God's word. And God did not want him to eat, and Satan wanted him to eat. Now, which voice will he listen to? Adam listened to the voice of Satan. Jesus will not do that. So he's trying to exploit Jesus' status as a son to do something that God doesn't want him to do, to serve wrong ends. Okay? So that's temptation number one. Pretty straightforward. Look at temptation number two. Look at verse five. Verse five. Then... In other words, the devil was not happy with that, so now he goes on to the next. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, in an instant. <clears throat> now, when it says it showed him the kingdoms of the world, this term world here means the inhabited world. And it means, most likely, the entire Roman Empire, the entire world that Rome controlled. And he shows him these kingdoms, and we believe this is a vision, because notice it says he did it in 
an instant. And in a moment of time. That's why we think it's a vision. Suddenly Jesus is in the wilderness. Next time he looks up, and there he's on the mountain. Is he literally on a mountain? Don't know if he's literally standing on a mountain with his two feet, or whether it's in a vision. This is probably visionary because it says it all happened in a split second. Happened in a moment of time. <clears throat> now look what happens. Look at verse 6. Then the devil speaks again. There's the voice. The devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. <clears throat> now this is very interesting. Because if you've been with us in Luke from the beginning, you know in Luke 2.1 and in Luke 3.1, we're told that Julius Caesar controls the entire kingdom. He controls the world. Caesar. Caesar controls the world. But now we discover that there's a power behind Caesar who really controls the world. And that power is Satan. Now, in Luke 2, 1, the Caesar is Augustus Caesar. That's at the time Jesus is born. Augustus Caesar is ruling the Roman Empire. And then he eventually dies. And in 3, 1, it's Tiberius Caesar who's the new emperor. And he's controlling the entire world. But in reality, who's controlling the world, according to chapter 4? Satan. Notice what he said. He took him to the mountain, showed him the kingdoms of the world, and he said, all this authority I will give, what? <coughs> you. Implication is that he gave it to Augustus Caesar. That he gave it to Tiberius Caesar. And he can give it, he says, to who? Whomever he wishes. And Jesus never, ever says, you're wrong, you don't have that power. Notice how much power he says he can give you. In verse uh, 6, the devil said to him, how much of this authority? All this authority. I could make you the next Caesar. See, that's what you need to be reading when you read this. He's already made two people Caesar in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He said, you know, if I want to, I can just make you the next Caesar. I can put you in a position of favor and you'll be the next Caesar. You'll control the whole world. See, once you see the political context here and what's being offered Jesus is you can run the entire world. And he says, you can have it all. I can give all of that authority to you. Now, how can he make that promise? He says at the end of verse 6, because this has been delivered to me. I'm the one that's been given the authority to run the entire world. It's under my control. We're not told when that happened. We don't know whether it happened in the garden. We're not told any of those things, but he has that authority. Not only does he say he can give him all authority, he says he can give him all the glory. That's the glory, the honor, the acclaim, the prestige that comes with running an empire. You know what that's like? A person who's important, they have all this honor, this glory. You ever been in the presence of a president or a king of a country or a queen? Or They walk into a room, they have an entourage. <laughs> Everyone's waiting on them. They have all this respect and this acclaim and 
you know, you, you don't dare approach them. They approach you. And he said, I can give you all that that goes with running a universe or running an empire. It's all yours because it's mine to deliver and I can give it to whomever I want. Now, the amazing thing to me is, at the beginning of Luke, we saw that God already promised Jesus the kingdom. Remember that? We don't need to go back and look at those verses, but you can look in chapter 1 and chapter 2. You can look at the different prophecies that he'd sit on the throne of his father David. Of his kingdom, there'd be what? No end. You remember that? And of that kingdom, there'd be no end. You know, if Satan gave Jesus the kingdom, you think it would have come to an end? Did Tiberius' reign end? Did Augustus Caesar's reign end? Do you think Jesus' reign would have ended? Satan offers him a kingdom instantly, right now. You don't have to wait. Jesus has no idea when God's going to give him his kingdom. So he's offering him instant gratification. Right now I'll give it to you. But guess what? It will end. <laughs> now he didn't say that. But we know it's going to end because in 2.1 and 3.1, we saw that Augustus Caesar's kingdom has ended and Tiberius Caesar's <coughs> kingdom is going to end. And so... Satan, in a sense, is shortchanging him, but he offers it to him right now, right on the spot. There's only one stipulation. Look at verse 7. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And that word worship means to prostrate before me, to get down on your knees. Worship always involves bowing the knee. So if you'll just bow the knee and begin to worship me, this is all yours. This is the, uh, the great theme of Faust, where an individual enters into a contract with the devil. And the devil says, well, what do you want? And the person sells his soul to the devil. People, some people sell their soul to the devil for much less than others do. Here he offers Jesus everything. You think this is, Jesus was thinking back on this when he said, what should it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So Satan says, all you have to do is worship me. That's all it requires. So now we have Jesus' response. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered and said unto him, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, Old Testament quote, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Now notice that Satan says, all you have to do is worship me, but Jesus adds something. He adds serve. Because Jesus knows there's no such thing as worship without service, without serving. See, this is a false concept that we have, by the way. We have this thing where I'll walk forward, I'll give my life to Christ, I'll worship him, but there's no service. That's not real, that's not real worship. See, Jesus knows... To worship means that that person becomes your God. That's the person you're giving your allegiance to. 
and that involves service. And so Jesus says, there's only one person that I will worship and by implication serve, and that is God, and that's what the scripture says. So we serve God. So what is Satan trying to do here? He's trying to get Jesus... To say, I deserve a kingdom. <clears throat> and I deserve the kingdom right now. But Jesus will not give in to this temptation. Rather, he will trust God to meet his needs, to feed him, and he will trust God to give him the kingdom. See, Satan offered food now, stones to bread. Kingdom now. Here's all you have to do. Change. Worship. Change the stone to bread. Worship me. <coughs> Just like that. Needs met. Everything you want. It's all yours. So Jesus instead trusts God to meet his needs. Another scripture says that after the temptations were over, God sent angels to minister to Jesus and they fed him. We, want, we won't go there, but just want you to know that. God took care of his needs. And God will give him a kingdom. It'll be different, a different kind of kingdom than the one that Satan offered. Now look at verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem. Now you don't think they took a little trek, do you, into the city? Probably again a vision. Set him right on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. So what we have now is we have gone from the mundane, changing stones in the bread, to a spectacular vision of seeing all the kingdoms of the world, and now Satan brings him to the holiest place of all. He brings him to the temple, the place of worship, located in the city of the center, the center of the city of Jerusalem, the place of faith. Hey. You can be tempted. We're not only tempted in the wilderness, we're tempted in the place of worship. Many temptations take place right over there in that building when we're worshiping. All kinds of temptations are going through. Don't think Satan just tempts you out in the dry places. He tempts you even in the places of worship. And so he <laughs> takes you to the pinnacle of the temple. Now the pinnacle is the highest point on that temple. This was a 45-acre temple compound built by Herod the Great. It was magnificent. In the southeast corner, it looked over the Kidron Valley, and it was a spectacular view. And Josephus says, from the pinnacle of the temple, if you look straight down, you couldn't even see the bottom because it was so steep. And what Satan says to Jesus is, since you're the Son of God, in verse 9, jump. Jump off the building. Cast yourself down. You couldn't even see the bottom. Just go on. Jump. And then Satan quotes the scripture. He says, this is from Psalm 91. He says, God will give his angels charge over you. Just jump. God will give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands... Right when you're ready, hit the bottom, it'll be like Superman swoops down with his arms and he'll just 
lift you right on. Those angels just lift you right on up. You won't even get hurt. Just jump. Trust God. Since you're the son of God, if you jump, your father, because of your status, will send these angels, swoop right down, and just lift you right up. You don't have to worry about anything. Just jump. Now, what's he trying to do here? He's trying to get Jesus to act presumptuously. But think he's acting in faith. There's a difference between presumptuous action and faithful action. That's probably the most subtle of the temptations. Uh, what would have happened had Jesus jumped? Listen, trusting God to save him. What do you think would have happened? Well, it would be the same thing happened if you jumped out in front of a car on Central Expressway. <laughs> you ever have this compulsive or impulsive thought? Jump out in front of a car on Central Expressway. You're a child of God. You're a king's kid. He'll take care of you. Boy, don't you believe in miracles? Didn't God save Daniel from the lion's den? <laughs> He'll do it to you. Just jump. That's not faith. That's presumption. Amen. The only time you jump is when God says jump. <laughs> not when a voice in your head says jump. You see, that's the difference. So he was told to jump. This is why I'm really concerned about all the faith healers. They come on the scene and then they say, they bring you up and they zap you and then they say, now throw away your insulin. Throw away those crutches, your back brace. Throw this away. Just by faith. By faith. Trust God. He'll take care of you. No, that's presumption. That's not faith. That's presumption. I know because I've tried it before. <laughs> I was much younger. <laughs> I think I was in my 20s. And I had gone to a meeting and uh, some crazy meeting I'd gone to. And I don't know if the guy was praying for people to be healed or what the situation was. But anyway, by faith. I threw away my glasses. <laughs> now I remember the first time I put a pair of glasses on. And I could see. And I said, whoa. You know, that was a miracle. With this person, I think it was a person that told me this. Or maybe I just felt this impulse to do it. And I just tossed my glasses aside. Now the crazy thing is that Lynn and I, we, weren't, we were married, but we weren't, didn't have children yet. We were heading out to Illinois because I had to attend an executive leadership meeting for Youth for Christ. I was going to be trained there for three or four weeks. And uh, now I was going to drive out there without my glasses <laughs> from Baltimore, Maryland. And, and we did. And it was okay during the day. But when it started getting dark, I realized I was I had very poor night vision. I was nearsighted. And everything looked triple. And when I got into Gary, Indiana, which is like the armpit of America, yes. please forgive me if you're from Gary, Indiana. But let me tell you, I mean, the smoke was belching. And, the, and they were doing all these repairs on the road. And everything was down to the one lane on each side with these barriers. And I'm in territory that I'm not familiar with. And suddenly I've come to this realization that I made a big, big mistake. <laughs> So I, uh, fortunately, I made it there. I didn't kill anybody and was out there for three weeks and came back. And I went to my, the bureau in my bedroom. I put my glasses on. And I said, whoa, that's a miracle. I can see it. Again. <laughs> it was great. 
But that was presumption. How about if I would have killed somebody? That would have been horrible. Thinking that I was operating in faith. But it was presumption. Now, I sincerely thought I was, this by putting my glasses aside, was an act of faith. But it was an act of presumption. And that's how close presumption and faith are. It's very hard to distinguish them. So, and the thing is that what makes it so deceptive is that Satan used some scriptures. He said, God says that you should do this. See, that's what's dangerous about these healers out here. They'll give you a scripture for what they're telling you to do. And it looks good. I mean, you read that scripture, it looks pretty good right there. But it doesn't mean what, it, what, he's, what he says it means. That's why it's important that you quote scripture in context. That's why it's hard to teach the Bible correctly, because you have to do a lot of work to find out what the context of a passage is. We just finished, uh, Broadman Holman just finished publishing their Apologetic Study Bible, which is a Bible that people can use to answer the questions that cultists have and everything. And I was asked to take the 60 verses, pick out 60 verses in the Bible that the cults twist to use to their own advantage and for their own purposes. Verses that they take and say it means this, when in reality it means something else. And so I had to write 60, I wrote 60 articles on these passages that cults twist. Now, if I were living back in Jesus' day, that's one of them I would have taken right there. See, if the early church said, can you give us some verses that people twist us? I'll give you one that Satan twisted. Psalm 91. So you have to watch out for people quoting the Bible. And when they quote the Bible, you say, well, they quote the Bible. It doesn't mean anything. You have to quote the Bible and interpret it correctly. So context is everything. Every cult has a scripture upon which to hang its false doctrine. Every single one of them. That's why they're believable. Because they have the Bible. And they show it to you. They come to your door and they show you the Bible. Let me show you right here. So he quotes the scripture. So now we have Jesus' response. Jesus knows that it's not quoted correctly. So verse 12... He answered and said unto him, It has been said. Now here's one that you uh, you don't have to interpret. It's so clear cut. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. He just quotes a scripture that's so straightforward that even a child could understand. You should not tempt the Lord your God. And if I jump off the building and say, Now, Lord... Save me. Prove it. I want to try to prove you. I'm testing you. Save me. That's tempting God. And he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So context is very important. Now look at verse 13. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, and we were only told of three, he departed from him until an opportune time. He'll be back. Always waiting for an opportune time, just the right time. In Luke, he doesn't show up again until chapter 23, chapter 22 or chapter 23. But what we have here is we have Jesus wins the temptation over Satan. Now, what we have, if we're going to try to apply all this and look for some lessons or 
ask some questions. One of the things you would have to notice is that the temptation follows the baptism. It's very important the way Luke puts that together, chronologically. The temptation follows the baptism. So what we have in our baptism is we have our initial pledge of allegiance to God. God, we will serve you, and we're baptized publicly, and we say we will serve him. And God says, with you, I'm well pleased when you make that commitment. But then comes the temptation, and God tests you to find out whether you really mean what you say. To determine whether you will be obedient or not. Whose voice will you listen to? Will you listen to the voice of the enemy, or will you listen to his voice? Will you do his will, or will you do your will? And so it's very important that we see that the temptation follows the baptism. He tests our profession of faith. He tests our profession of faith. Okay? Now, notice, second of all, what the devil used to defeat Satan, God used to defeat the devil. Satan said, oh, I'm going to use these temptations. I'm going to get this second Adam to fall, just like I got the first Adam to fall. But in reality, Jesus overcame the temptations. And as a result, Satan was defeated, showing that Jesus, not Satan, had the last word. In the Garden of Eden, Satan had the final word. He defeats Adam. In this case, Jesus defeats Satan. Now, a third thing I want you to notice, and this is a sort of an interesting thing, is that deals with uh, this third temptation where he tells him to jump and that God will rescue you. Uh, just an observation. Divine rescue uh, is not guaranteed before suffering and death. Listen to that again. Divine rescue is not guaranteed before suffering and death. Notice the temptation. Jump, and before you die, before you hurt yourself, before you hit the bottom, whoop! He'll swoop down and he'll rescue you. You won't even dash your foot against the stone. You won't even stump your foot, stump your toe, right? But that's not the case. In reality, divine rescue usually comes through suffering and death. And Jesus is the primary example. When did God rescue Jesus? After he died. Not before he died. Jesus faced death. And in facing death, he trusted God for his future. He was put to death. Three days later, God came through and rescued him. So we're not guaranteed that we will be rescued before we suffer or before we die. Before we die, oftentimes we have to go through the suffering. And oftentimes the rescue comes after death. You say, what does that mean? That means we too are guaranteed that we'll be raised from the dead. Our bodies will be raised from the dead. Okay? <clears throat> and then finally <clears throat> in Satan shortchanging Jesus <clears throat> offering him a kingdom that would be only temporary he also offered him a kingdom that would only be <clears throat> earthly he said all that you can see will be yours because I have the authority, do you remember that? To give it to whoever I wish. Jesus faces death, he dies. Three days later, God rescues him. <coughs> and then God gives Jesus authority. And Jesus says, 
all authority. Hey, that's the same phrase that we saw over here, isn't it? Satan said he had all authority. Look what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me, has been delivered to me, in where? Heaven and earth. Satan just offered him authority over earth. And so here you see that by following God's will, God always has something better for you in the long run than Satan does in the short run. And so Jesus comes out of the wilderness, it says in verse 14, in the power of the Spirit, and he goes to Galilee, and he goes into the synagogues, and he begins to teach. And that's where we'll pick up next week with Jesus in a new power of the Spirit, teaching about the kingdom of God that he's going to establish through the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. We thank you for these temptations that are temptations that we face every day. Temptations that just deal with natural appetites. Temptations that deal with pride and instant gratification. Uh, presumptuous temptations where we think we can do certain things. And, uh, and yet, Lord, you say pride goes before a fall. Uh, some of our decisions are deathly. When we think that we're acting on faith, we're making big mistakes. Oh, Lord, help us to hear your voice and obey it, and not the voice of the enemy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>